beloved JSF and JM here. <laughs> hello, hello. Uh, so welcome to the first bookshelf episode in the podcast for like-minded deviants. Uh, so remember, again, as we explained last week, this is a more academic take on capitalism where we're going to set out at and basically establish um, an explanation of what capitalism is so that we're all working from the same foundation and starting point yeah it's it's more like your uh your lunchable if you will or your little snap off like it's not the full idea of capitalism totally exhausted but it's really meant to be and and that this topic is capitalism but again to the concept it's the let me go grab that real quick and it's not even the full textbook of it it's a um what is that 30 second or two minute overview I can send to my parents? This is capitalism in a nutshell that, that gives it its true due. But at the same time, we're not going into details or getting into that. That's what the other right. episode is for the conversation right now. We're just, this is what it is. It's meant to be helpful, useful, kind of streamlined 15 minutes, just kind of, uh, kind of quick, kind of take it and go. So with that, we hope you take it and go and enjoy the episode. All right, friends. Now is the time that we do our deep dive in to capitalism. I'm really looking forward to this. Um, this is again, kind of that headier um, explanation, just so we make sure we're setting the terms. We're all on the same page. Um, there are a lot of assumptions about what capitalism is. And so Lindy kind of as our resident expert here, uh, can you walk us through capitalism? What is the capitalist kind of market economy? But really that's kind of what we're looking at writ large. Uh, I think the, the question I want to start off with is what does capitalism look like? And I guess there's there's a corollary that comes with that, and it's what does it not look like, right? And so what do we kind of need to have in front of us when we're talking about capitalism? That's a, that is a really important question, and it is odd how seldom we actually stop and ask ourselves as if we know what all this is. And it's the stuff that's all around us, at least the conversation. Right. And um, but fortunately, I think that that it, while this is a heavy subject and it's pretty difficult to kind of the plumb the depths of it, it's pretty simple to identify. Uh, scholars tell us what capitalism is. I mean, what its distinctive components are. And there's really two essential features of market capitalism uh, or a market capitalist economy. The first is um, the institution of private property. And so basically, who owns uh, what is actually being owned? Right. And, um, you know, and in this, in for capitalism to actually, market capitalism to be, to be what we're talking about, primarily um, the private sector has got to be the owners. So you have private property, the state doesn't own, and the public sector doesn't own. And this is defined um, not only negatively, which is uh, basically the idea of protecting 
uh, protection by way of law or social mores in order to prevent others from taking property by force. And we, we often think about that. You know, it's like, this is mine. No one can take it from me. And, you know, we'll end up talking about this issue that we have to, I'm going to say that, you know, talk about it a little bit, that you then have to have a legal structure in order to, to adjudicate those claims. Sure. But basically, um, there's something from prohibited in terms of private property. Other people can't take your stuff. And then also it's defined pro- positively. So in other words, what, what the market system in terms of private property encourages. And um, so there's freedom of individual action in respect to the use and disposition of all property. So you get to do with your stuff what you want. No one else, provided you know it's not hurting other people and you're not stealing in the process, uh, violating the first one, you get to do what you want. So there's freedom of agency, freedom of choice. So that's the first one, this idea of private property. The second one is that there is an exchange. You know, we trade stuff, goods and services mediated through markets, right? Mm -hmm. And that um, markets kind of in the, the, not just like a a wet market that you'll find in any major city where, you know, you're swapping chickens for for grain or whatever. But here we're kind of talking about uh, markets with a capital M and this has to do with kind of something to do with financial markets. So the idea is that markets are signaled and signed by prices. And this is so common for us. We don't even think it's a distinctive, but it is. It's not barter. We're talking about markets requiring money. And this allows for money to, so we don't have to trade you know, goats for barley wheat and drag those things around and find <laughs> other people that want what we have and we want what they have. We end up using a token. Uh, a token system, something that's a store of value or wealth, something that's a medium of exchange, and something that's a unit of account that allows us to count how much is what, right? And that that market mediates and it establishes prices that provide first information, right? So the idea of what something is worth, um, and this is a key strength, and then also incentives, so it basically will we'll encourage you to either sell or to buy or those sorts of things. So it's those two things, private property and markets in light of uh, price mechanisms. Is that really all that goes into defining like what capitalism looks like? No, it doesn't. And that's a great question. <laughs> it, there, it's the constituting component. There's no two ways about it. But there's more to it. Markets, and, and we quite often forget this, because remember, we, we talked earlier that, you know, we've kind of leaned on this idea of market mechanisms. The world is a machine. That's our controlling metaphor. And so we think mm-hmm. the machine's going to take care of everything. But in actual fact, there the if you even want to see it as a machine, and I think, I think, as I've said before, that's critiquable. But I think the machine needs other stuff. You know, it needs lubricant and oil, if you will. So they were, the, the market requires some kind of a wider framework, and I've already referred to this, of law. But even not just what's law and what has to do with our court systems, but even social custom. And this basically constitutes kind of the moral basis that's external to the market that allows it, like, honesty, fairness, belief in what truth is. You know, we're seeing this kind of eroded a lot these days that, you know, you can't even decide upon what facts are. If you if you don't mm-hmm. have that, it's very difficult to sustain capitalism. And capitalism itself, because it's just an issue of exchange. Think about it, you know, to go for a free market capitalist system, we're trying to get away from people inserting values into the public square. 
so that we're just asserting our, our desires. And so what we're trying to do is, is, is establish something that doesn't require kind of a moral system. But if you need a moral basis, capitalism can't try, can't provide that for itself. Now, it, it, it kind of pretends it does. So it presents a value system of consumption. And again, we've talked about this earlier in this season, that it's all about consuming. And that's often smuggled in, and that's challengeable, and I think we will challenge it. But an actual decent value system tends to be eroded. And it's because of the idea that everything has to do with transaction and, 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 and exchange. But if we can recognize that that's, that needs, it needs more, we need kind of an incorruptible judiciary. We need some place where people can take their claims to an independent judicial court and make claims and have them adjudicated and say who's ripping off who. Mm. And then there also needs to be kind of like Tocqueville used to talk about in, in the 1840s, uh, habits of the heart, kind of a general social assent and common standards that are upheld, this honesty and truth. These things are needed. If you don't have it, price and sheer assertion of, of greed, frankly, yeah. and consumption basically cannibalizes the entire system. So the, the system can be running just great, but it actually eats itself. Mm-hmm. And this is a real, real problem. Okay. So, Lindy, are there any details that generally, or, or maybe you could say always, right? So generally, do they or always, can they be found within a capitalist system? Well, yeah, um, because you know, as we know it, and again, some of this is so much there, it's like this proverbial fish discovering water. We're just so used to it, especially in, in free market uh, kind of, ca- you know, uh, neoliberal capitalism, sure. which we're bathed in. We don't really <laughs> even see it. But but basically, you have um, actors within the economy, and they, they can either be firms, right? So, um, you know, these kind of entrepreneurship is particularly important in the sector. And firms that are actors and operate in regard to the give and take that we call supply and demand. And they, there's kind of three functions for this. They, they purchase the inputs that are ne- necessary in the, the provision, the factor markets. And then they also provide the organizing structure for production, right? So they, they kind of build, build the walls around the entire thing. Um, they tell you where the firms are. They tell you, you know, where production will occur and, and all those sorts of things. And then they sell their output, whether in, in goods or in services. And kind of you have to have this characteristic of the firm as the actor, the primary actor in the neoliberal kind of uh, capitalist sector, that they operate within a legal framework of what's called limited liability. Mm-hmm. You know, you'll see you'll often see LLC. Yep. at the end of a company's name, Limited Liability Liability Corporation. And the idea here is that companies or corporations operate as legal persons and that they, therefore, will take over the risk and the individual stakeholders, the risk to them will be greatly reduced. So it, it induces them to actually take entrepreneurial chances, right? So they're not beholding for more than... Um, you know, what their claims are in the company. So if something goes down, they don't have to make good for every everything. They just make good for whatever their buy-in is. 
And then also this legal framework and this limited liability, usually you have a board or you have some sort of a governing structure. They take responsibility for the direction and running of the firm. And But that's often, nowadays especially, delegated to managers. So this whole idea that even mm-hmm. Marx critiqued about more bourgeoisie isn't as much in play because you don't, you know, the... the Board of directors, the shareholders, what have you, often are not the primary decision makers. Often that's delegated to CEOs, COOs, CFOs, you know, chief executive officers, and managers. Now, the firm's a legal entity. Limited to the initial stake in the firm, but quite often you get a managing class that's operating the whole thing. And then out, after that, you, uh, out, you get, um, besides... Firms, they're selling to in you know their goods and services to the private households, right? And this is a a, a really significant thing because you know right if you if you don't have somebody to buy your stuff, this is not you know you're not going to be able to sell. The firms will not will not um, um, do anything. They won't they won't succeed. But also the firms hire labor from the private sector, from the household sector, from the private households. So you have basically a, a cycle, a cycle between the, the resource market and the, the, the product market, right? And, and you know, the, the private households get income by working for the, the, uh, the, the corporate sector. So this is why you get such a problem whenever people, when firms, when you have a recession and firms start laying people off, people start losing their jobs, they stop spending. So the firms then start tanking and going under, they lay more people off and you get this awful, desperate downward cycle, right? And so this income is really, really important to the private sector. But you also have to remember there's one additional thing and that is income is not the same thing as wealth. So you have wealth that are the value of the things that people own in the private sector. And this can cause, obviously, inequality that is reflected uh, in the disparity that's in our society. And again, this is something that probably the market itself is not going to regulate. We've got to have some sort of morality and some sort of an ethical system that adjudicates. But inequality of wealth is significant. Because those who, with assets, have higher incomes, this is a given fact, and those with wealth are better placed to cope with the the ups and downs of the market system, with its shifting patterns of returns and rewards, what is often called the business cycle. Is there anything else that you'd want to add just to make sure that we got this all sort of nailed down before we jump into? I want to make sure there aren't any major terms or concepts that we're leaving on the table here just to make sure give capitalism it's due well there there are basically two additional things that i think that we can take into our our conversation when we really kind of apply our ethical system to this because again we need one right we need to apply it and that is the first is there's you have to remember not only is there a difference between um, income and wealth Honestly, at a moral and ethical position, especially for people that were trying to pitch themselves like we are, we have to make sure that, that we recognize the distinction between wealth and riches. Mm. You know, wealth, mm. um, even etymologically, comes from well-being, wholeness, those sorts of things. Wealth is, you know, like um, how we're doing as a community, how we treat each other, how we're happy, how we're blessed and benefiting. In our case, how we're serving the God who's created us. Riches, frankly, are um, 
exchangeable, whether goods, services, or token wealth in regard to money. And they're signals and signs of wealth, but they're not wealth itself. And the weird thing is, wealth can go down when riches go up. Because when people get more and more wealthy, the sociological studies have shown this does not guarantee happiness. In mm. fact, sometimes happiness can go down when people get more riches. Um, there have been studies that have shown um, that probably somewhere around in, throughout the world, and especially here in the United States, anywhere beyond, say, seventy-five dollars to $80,000 a year, most signals and, and gauges of happiness on the part of people actually tend to stay flat or even go down if you surpass that riches standard. So <laughs> wealth and well-being goes down. Um, now, why? We're going to have to explore that. But part of the reason is, is because we get con confused between wealth and riches. They're not the same thing. Money is not the same thing as well-being. Secondly, there's a difference between uh, free market and free enterprise. And we tend in the United States to equate those two. Mm. Free market means there's no regulations except at the bare minimum upon um, anything that people do. That's that issue of private property uh, sovereignty on the part of people. That does not mean that doing that, uh, granting that to people, especially when some people are much more wealthy, much have many more assets and and wealth than other people, and that they have much more higher incomes. That doesn't mean that's going to allow for everybody to be engaged in enterprise. So private, uh, uh, I mean, uh, free markets often can cause a problem for free enterprise. We have an example of this being recognized by the United States government, and that is in the antitrust laws in the late 19th and early 20th century right. that were instituted here. Because when you break up monopolies, the reason you're doing it is because this monopoly effect, which is the result of free markets, is not conducive to people getting into the, the market and actually being free in regard to free enterprise. There's an old saying that I heard one time in Indonesia, translated to English, um, I think they probably, whoever said it to me, probably borrowed it from Africa. So it might be originally an African saying, but it really is kind of cool, but also sad that when elephants uh, fight, the grass suffers. Mm. Yeah. And so, you know, the problem is you can let turn the elephants free, but not everybody, especially the little animals in the grass is going to be free to also engage.